is represented in our church. <laughs> okay, we're going to look at John chapter 18. My wife is going to read the first 14 verses. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers, with its commander and the Jewish officials, arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be, would be good if one man died for the people. Right, so we're going through John's Gospel, and here we've reached uh, chapter 18. And at this point, there's a bit of a change in the style of the Gospel in a way, because up to now, we've had a huge amount of teaching, much more than we get in the other Gospels. And uh, in fact, at this point, uh, right through chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, Jesus has been teaching his disciples on the same night that he's actually portrayed. Uh, betrayed, sorry, on the same night that he's betrayed. And as we come to chapter 18, there's a bit of a change in tone because we move now from teaching to narrative, and we're going to look at the, the cross and the resurrection in these last few chapters. All four Gospels give a great deal of attention to the uh, crucifixion and to the resurrection because, of course, it's of extreme importance. But also, all four Gospels, in a way, give very little explanation about the cross. Uh, why did Jesus go to the cross? Uh, why did Jesus have to die? And to get the answer to that, we really have to go to the epistles of the New Testament. We need to read what Paul said, and what the writer to the Hebrews said, and what Peter said. Uh, you may sometimes wonder why in evangelical churches so much attention seems sometimes disproportionately to be spent in preaching on the epistles from the uh, Bible. And the answer is because that's where we get the explanation of the cross. 
uh, the meaning of why Jesus died and the implications of that. Uh, but we do need to give attention to the narrative because this is real history. And John himself is an eyewitness to the crucifixion and to the events that took place at that time. Uh, and indeed, unless it uh, is history, then any explanation that's given of it would simply be hollow. This really happened. So in this chapter, we're at a point where we read of the arrest of Jesus, the trials of Jesus, and also a kind of sub-story, which is the denials of Jesus made by his disciple Peter. But this morning, we're just going to concentrate on the first 14 verses. And uh, this talks about the arrest of Jesus. At this point in the story, Jesus has just celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples. That was a Passover meal. It's a celebration and a meal that still takes place in Jewish families uh, every year. And what it celebrates is the way that the Jews were released from slavery in Egypt and then were to go out under the leadership of Moses and cross the Red Sea and eventually, of course, come to freedom in the Promised Land. Now, Judas Iscariot has left this Passover meal early because he's gone to arrange the arrest of Jesus. And he knew that Jesus would actually go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the reason we know that he knew this is because of what we know about the Garden of Gethsemane. It was, in fact, a private garden. Uh, it wasn't a public space. Don't think of it as a kind of public park. It was a private garden. And uh, Jesus obviously had permission to go there. And we assume that he knew the owner of the garden. And during the time of the Passover, thousands, hundreds of thousands maybe even of Jews would come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and the Jewish authorities decreed that everyone who came to Jerusalem for the Passover had to actually stay in the city, although the city's limits were in fact artificially extended for the season of the Passover. Now, Jesus had been staying with his disciples in Bethany. But Bethany was outside the city limits, even the extended limits of Jerusalem. And so, Jesus uh, was going to go to Gethsemane, and Ju Judas knew that. And the reason was that probably they were going to sleep there, uh, which may surprise you, but remember this is first century Palestine, and I'm sure a lot of people at that time could have been sleeping in the open air. This wasn't at the time of travel lodges and premier inns. And if, if you remember what happened when the disciples went into the Garden of Gethsemane, that's exactly what they did. They fell asleep. Although the other Gospels tell us that Jesus uh, spent some considerable time in prayer. Judas Iscariot turns up, and with him there are Jewish authorities and there are soldiers. And this is the ideal occasion to arrest Jesus. It's night, they're right at the extent of the city limits, uh, there are no crowds around, Nobody could kind of get in the way or cause trouble. This was an ideal time to arrest Jesus. The soldiers were not Jewish soldiers, they were Roman soldiers. Now, normally, there weren't really any Roman soldiers in Jerusalem. They were barracks uh, some distance away in another town called Caesarea. 
but during Jewish festivals, a detachment of soldiers would always come into the city of Jerusalem and would be temporarily barracked in the fortress of Antonia. And the reason for that was that with so many Jews crowding into the city of Jerusalem for the celebration or the festival, there was always the potential for some unrest. And so the soldiers were there in case there was any need for crowd control. And so this is the scene. Jesus is in the Gethsemane. The disciples had fallen asleep. The Jewish authorities and the soldiers turn up and Jesus is arrested. And we're going to make some comments that arise out of this particular story. First of all, Jesus knew what would happen to him. And that's there in verse 4. Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him. And we really need to emphasize he knew all that was going to happen to him. Uh, And actually, this is not only something that's true at this point in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see it in other places in the Gospels. For example, and again, this is not just the only example, but it's one example. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So Jesus knew what was going to happen to him, all that was going to happen to him. And he had been telling this to the disciples This helps us to realize that there was a plan in what was going to happen. What happened to Jesus wasn't just by chance, it wasn't just a mistake, it wasn't just a random thing. Jesus knew and it was in the plan. And the clearest expression of this really comes in the book of Acts because uh, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost and in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, this is what Peter says, This man, referring to Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And so, Peter says, this was God's plan that Jesus would go to the cross. And of course, Jesus knew the plan. Why then does it seem that the the Jews and the Romans are actually spoken of as being guilty of the crucifixion of Jesus? Well, I'm not going to pretend that there isn't perhaps something of a mystery here, but we need to understand also that God is sovereign, and therefore uh, God is able to work out His plans even through wicked men. But still, as this uh, takes place, there is no explanation in any great detail of the way or the reason why Jesus was crucified. Yes, there is an explanation of the way he was crucified, but not the, the why of why Jesus was crucified, which is why I say you really have to go into the letters to see that. But do you remember that when Jesus was crucified, that some of the crowd began to mock him there on the cross, and they said to him on the cross, look, if you can save others, why can't you save yourself? Why don't you come down from the cross and save yourself? And in fact, it's the letters that explain to us that Jesus could not come down from the cross, because it's only through the cross that Jesus could save us. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, The only explanation for that is that the cross was the central message that Paul had. It was what had to be preached. It was the truth that had to be known. 
that Jesus went to the cross and the purpose of the cross was to save men and women from their sins. So Jesus could not come down uh, from the cross. Ever thought about this? What was in this for Jesus? If Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him, if Jesus knew about the horror of crucifixion that he had to face, if it was there all in the plan, why didn't Jesus change the plan? Why didn't Jesus duck out of this horror? In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, if it was possible, that he wouldn't actually have to go through with this. So why, why did Jesus go through with it? What was in it for Jesus? Well, Titus tells us that Jesus gave himself to redeem a people that will be his very own. Jesus was expecting to gather a people for himself. And in Hebrews 12, 2, it's put even more strongly. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus knew the plan. He knew he'd have to endure the cross. He knew he'd have to uh, put aside all the terrible shame of a public crucifixion. But for the joy that was set before him, Jesus went to the cross at Calvary. And that joy is us. Jesus was redeeming a people for himself. Jesus was desiring to have his own people and to have his church. And Jesus knew that only through the cross would he be able to save a people for himself. He would have that church. He would have that people. And that means that we are the joy of Jesus. Gateway Church, this church is the joy of Jesus. It's why he couldn't come down from the cross. Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him. And then secondly, we see something here about the glory of Jesus. You may recall that as we've gone through John's Gospel, we pointed out that uh, seven times Jesus says, I am. And every time he says it, he says, I am something. He says, I am the bread of life, or I am the resurrection uh, and the life. Or he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Every time Jesus uses this expression, I am, he explains something very significant about himself. But also, as he does that, he's deliberately echoing God's revelation of himself to Moses. So if you go back into the book of Exodus, you'll see that when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, he said uh, to Moses, you're to take my people and bring them out of slavery and release them from the captivity that uh, Pharaoh has put upon them. And Moses, discussing this, as it were, with God, says, yes, but what do I call you? What's your name? And if I'm going to do this, what shall I, who shall I say has spoken to me? What's your name? And you may remember at that very time, God said to Moses, I am. <laughs> that was the name. This is who I am. I am. And in saying that, God was speaking of his eternal nature, meaning he always was, he always will be, he always simply is. The only way that you can satisfactorily describe God in a phrase is in that phrase, I am, the eternal existence of God. And we see this again in Jesus now at the point of his arrest. So in verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And when Je Jesus said, I am he, they drew back 
and fell to the ground. Now, our translations have to make uh, uh, what Jesus said here readable. And so they translated as Jesus saying, I am he. Well, that's not literally correct. What Jesus actually said was exactly what God said to Moses. And he simply said to them, I am. In fact, there's a kind of double emphasis here. What he most literally said was, I, I am. And he was speaking in that phrase of his eternal existence and divinity, even as God was to Moses. Now, we're living in a time when there are plenty of atheists around these days to tell us that God doesn't exist. Only a few, few days ago, I read again some atheists saying, well, there's not a single scrap of evidence for the existence of God. Well, my friends, I think the very fact that we exist and creation exists is pointing to the reality of God. If we have a universe in existence, because everything has to come from something, there was a time when there was nothing, absolutely nothing. And I find it very interesting that when atheists look at the whole question of, of the existence of the universe, they always want to put something into the nothing. There's always a few atoms around or something like that. Or there's even a, a, a plan in physics, they say. This, uh, what's, what's happened would eventually be explained by the laws of physics. But if there was nothing, there were no laws of physics, there were no atoms, there was nothing. It's kind of hard to get your mind around it, but nothing is absolutely nothing, nothing at all. And now we have a universe which has got billions of galaxies and billions of stars in every galaxy. Where did it come from? Nothing created nothing? That takes a lot of believing. But there is an I am who spoke and brought everything into existence. And what does your atheist say when it comes to death? They say, well, we go to nothing. Okay, you go back to your creator. Nothing. But we believe that there is a God who has brought everything into existence. And this is Jesus speaking here and saying, I am. And as he says that, the soldiers who come out to arrest him fall to the ground. The only explanation I think you can give to that is that the moment that Jesus says, I am, that divinity and glory shine out from him. And the soldiers don't just back off because Jesus has said aloud, I am. They fall to the ground. I think of Revelation 1.17 when John was given a vision of Christ in glory. And John says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And confronted with the glory and divinity of Jesus, these soldiers fall back and they fall to the ground. The I am the glory of God somehow blazes through. That means, my friends, that in a sense, we have seen Christ and we haven't seen Christ. We've seen him in the sense that we recognize him as our Savior and Lord, but there's so much more. There's a divinity and there's a glory that are yet to blaze through in our sight. The word glory, Matthew was discussing this and talking about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. The word glory is quite hard to define and to explain when attached to God. But uh, the root of the word glory comes from a Hebrew word which means weight or heaviness. Uh, a number of years ago, I was uh, in Cape Town 
and uh, I was on a ministry trip, and I had been speaking on the Sunday evening at a church we worked with there, and we knew that there was a kind of after-meeting taking place at a, a local church nearby. And uh, the guy who was speaking at this, this meeting was well-known in South Africa, and he's something of an evangelist, and had a strong emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we decided to go along. So when we finished our meeting, we shot along to this other uh, church, and the meeting had already started, uh, and we sat sort of in the back row, and the speaker was uh, uh, preaching at that point, and very quickly after we got there, he said, what I want to do this evening, and this was typical of him, what I want to do is to pray for all church leaders in this building. There's obviously a number of leaders that come from other churches to hear him. And uh, I thought, wow, I'd like to be prayed for. Uh, I'm a church leader, but then I also thought, I know this guy's style, and I know what he'll do. He'll line us up, and then he'll go along and pray for us, and he'll put his hand on our chest, and when he gets to us, he'll pray, and then he'll push us over. So it looks as though his, his uh, prayer is particularly effective. So I thought, I don't want to be pushed over, but I do want to be prayed for. <coughs> so <coughs> I decided that i go down to get prayed for, but I would stand firm, and I would not get pushed over. So we're, about, we're on the stage here now, and I suppose probably maybe something like 30 church leaders. I'm somewhere in about the middle, I think, and this guy comes along the ground, and you know, they're going down, boom, boom, boom. And there are, there are catchers that are lying them out, and I thought, not me. He gets to me, prays for me, and goes, boom, and I go straight over. And I'm, I'm pushed flat on the ground, and I'm lying there and thinking, blow, he's pushed me over. I'm not going to stand for this. And I thought, yes, I will, I'll get up and go. So I went to get up, you know, I couldn't move. I was absolutely on the ground with like a weight upon me, and I couldn't move myself. And I think in that moment, for all my pride, that I wouldn't be pushed over. I just got a touch of the heaviness and the weight of glory. I felt it in those moments. It's obvious that I did get up again. I'm here this morning. But uh, <laughs> the word glory means weight, heaviness. And in eternity, we will see the full weight of glory. Actually, Paul picks this up in 2 Corinthians and in chapter 4 and verse 17, love this verse, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Notice the reference again to weight, there's a, an eternal glory. You may feel under pressure now, you may feel there's a weight upon you now, a heaviness upon you. That is light compared with the weight and heaviness of glory that one day you will experience forever. And so, we see the glory of Jesus coming through this story. There's also something here about eternal security. Uh, a few months ago, as we go through John's Gospel, I, I preached on John 6 about Jesus being the bread of life. And we particularly looked at the whole issue of our eternal security. That's particularly based on John 6 and verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, says Jesus, that I should lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. So Jesus promises he'll lose none of his true disciples. They'll be raised up at the last day. You go to John chapter 10, and Jesus talks of himself as the good shepherd, and that none of those sheep will be lost. He'll gather in all his sheep, and if one goes astray, he'll go after it and bring it back with great rejoicing. I'm not going to repeat all I said a few months ago, 
But just let me call your attention to chapter 18 again and verse 9 here. This happened, we read, so the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. And again, we get this emphasis that all Jesus' true disciples are his forever. None of them are going to be lost. He says, none of these uh, will be lost that you gave me. And then we have a little story, which in a way is quite trivial, but it's obviously there to illustrate that particular truth. And the story is of Malchus. Uh, it's just mentioned in a couple of verses, but Malchus is there. Malchus was a servant to the high priest, and he's come along with the crowd to arrest Jesus. Now, Malchus must have become a Christian. Otherwise, why would his name be recorded in the Bible? He must have been known to the first Christians. But here he is at this moment. He's a servant of the high priest. And in the heat of the arrest, uh, the disciple Peter draws a sword, and we read that he cuts off his ear. Uh, now, uh, I looked at this again as I was preparing, and again the question came to me, as it has often happened, why wasn't Peter hauled off by the soldiers at that point and taken away? I've always wondered that. And I kind of gave it some more thought and attention, and you've got to dig into Scripture sometimes. And one of the time, things that you'll discover is that although it says that uh, uh, Peter cut off his ear, the Greek words would indicate that it was only actually the earlobe. All right, so it's quite a minor incident, really. Uh, and we, we know here that Jesus, gee, well, you, depends, depends how important your, ear, your earrings are to you, I suppose. Uh, so, so, anyway, so uh, we, we read here, of course, that so Jesus healed uh, Malchus, but it probably wasn't that the whole ear was lying on the deck and then suddenly we back on again. It was, it was a cut uh, on, his, on his earlobe. And, and then Jesus re reaches out and, and heals him. Uh, and uh, Luke, who's a medical doctor, in his gospel says that it was his right ear, uh, so we get it very precisely, and that Jesus healed him. We get the full medical report because uh, that was Luke's style. And maybe at that point, some of the soldiers did grab Peter. But come on, his ear has been, he's been put right. Uh, they're here for Jesus. They've got their man. We don't need to bother about this guy. And perhaps they just kind of pushed him, pushed him off. Jesus was the focus. But what happens in that is that it's an illustration of what Jesus has said in verse 9, or what is said as far as Jesus is concerned in verse 9. I will not lose one of those that you gave me. And Peter isn't hauled off. Jesus is going to lose none of those that have been given to him. And in a way, it gets much worse than this, of course, because you go on in this chapter and you read that Peter denies Jesus three times. He kind of turns against Jesus and says, I never knew him. But then what happens at the end of John's Gospel, you remember in John 21, and I'm sure it'll be preached on Jesus restores Peter and says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, yes, I love you. And Jesus commissions him and says, go and feed my sheep. It's just demonstrating the fact that Jesus will lose none who are truly his. Jesus, my friends, will never let us go. In the book of Hebrews, which so often is thought of as a, a book that might teach that we can lose our salvation, has, in my opinion, one of the very strongest statements 
affirming our eternal salvation. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, what we read is this, Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And the English translation can't bring enough strength to that verse. It's not ambiguous. We read, therefore, he is able to save completely. It's stronger than that. It means he has the power to save and will save utterly, completely, and to the end. Everybody who believes in him, everybody who comes to God through him, Jesus will utterly, completely, and definitely save and also Right now, just to guarantee that, he's living and interceding for us. We often speak of the finished work of Christ, which is what took place upon the cross. But there is an unfinished work of Christ, and that is he is interceding right now for you and me, so that none of us will ever be lost. My friends, Jesus said it. It runs through John's gospel. It's there in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 none of Jesus' true disciples will ever be lost. So we have eternal security. And then, something about the meaning of the cross. I've said that we need the letters of the New Testament for a full explanation of Jesus' death. But there are two places in these few verses where this, in the story of his arrest where the significance of the cross does break through. It's a bit veiled, but it's there. So in verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And that's significant because in the Old Testament, the cup was a symbol of the wrath of God. And to drink the cup was to feel the wrath of God. You may remember that when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and praying, specifically, Jesus prayed about the cup. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Jesus said, I don't want to drink your wrath. I don't want to endure that. Please, if it's possible, can you take this cup from me? But Jesus could not have that cup removed because he was there to save a people. And Jesus will drink the cup and he will feel the wrath of God. And here we have the meaning of the cross, that Jesus, who knew no sin, will bear the wrath of God against our sin by and through his death. Now, sometimes you might have a thought that some so-called theologians like to parade around these days and say, surely it would be immoral for a total innocent man to bear God's wrath for other people. And I can understand in a way why some people might sometimes think that, but my friends, when you do, you're forgetting this, that God is not observing all of this from a distance. It's not Jesus who is enduring this, while as it were, God is just objectively looking on. God himself comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, we sing a song, we have a God who weeps, and a God who bleeds, and he carries his wrath upon himself. In fact, one theologian put it, God saves us from God. It's only on the cross that Jesus can drink 
the cup so that we do not have to face the wrath of God against our sin. And then the other thing that you should notice here is that when Jesus was arrested, he's taken to Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas had already made up his mind about Jesus, and he, he, he wanted Jesus to die. And in fact, the reason he wanted Jesus to die was because as high priest, he saw Jesus as a threat to himself, his own position, which was politically uh, motivated because, in fact, Caius's appointment had to be approved by the Romans. And so he, he saw Jesus as a potential threat to his position, but also a threat to the nation. If people followed this Jesus, the Romans might actually come down on us even harder. They might think this is a rebellion starting. And so Caiaphas had already decided that Jesus needed to be got rid of. He needed to die. And in John chapter 11, just a, a few chapters earlier, we read in verse 49 and 50, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. <clears throat> and then you come to uh, this particular chapter, and that gets repeated. So in verse 14, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. He said that because he wants to get rid of Jesus. But he's actually speaking out the message and meaning of the cross. Because Jesus is the one man who can die for his people. You know the hymn? Bearing sin and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a saviour. What about Charles Wesley's amazing hymn, And Can It Be, And Can It Be, that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me, in my place, died he for me, who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued. We look at this chapter, and what we're reading here is history. We're in Palestine 2,000 years ago. A man is arrested outside the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to be put on trial. He knows all that will happen to him, but it was all in the plan of God. This man is God-made man. This man uh, even has glory and divinity shining out from him when he's arrested. This man will save a people this man will lose none of them. This man went to the cross. This man drank the cup. This man, one man, the only man that could take our place, bear our sin, take our condemnation, set us free. Jesus is the man. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's stand together, can we please? <clears throat> Just as we're standing here and going to worship again, I'd just like to say to you that uh, there's an opportunity for you today here at this, in this building at this time, in this place, to respond to this one man, Jesus, who drank the cup for you 
who took the wrath of God for you, who took your place, who was prepared to take your guilt, who carried your sin, who substituted for you. And if you respond to this Jesus here today, you will be part of the joy of Jesus, all that he endured upon the cross at Calvary all the plan working out, but with all the suffering and the pain and the horrors of crucifixion in order that he might have you to be amongst his joy. And you can come to Jesus this morning. You can do that right now. You can say, right now, I believe in you, Jesus. You died for my sin and you rose again from the dead to set me free. You can talk to me or to one of the other leaders here afterwards. You can get prayer over on my right-hand side at the close of the meeting if you want to do it that way. But there's an invitation for you here this morning that Jesus is the one man who died for the people, which means he died for you. And you today can have forgiveness of sin, peace with God, and glory, the weight of glory to come forever. Father, we thank you for that one man, Jesus Christ. Lord, a story 2,000 years ago, but so up-to-date and relevant and pertinent for today. Lord, we thank you for this great salvation that's come to us through Jesus. And we pray that right now, joy will flood this congregation because we are the joy of Jesus. He endured the cross, scorned the shame for the joy that was set before him. Lord, we pray that we may be an expression of this joy to our wonderful Savior today in his mighty name. Amen.